Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. I am, as you know, recovering from laryngitis, so I apologize that uh, I'm having to scream a little bit here, but aren't we just uh, thrilled that God has invited us into his presence today? Amen. Our call to worship today comes from Psalm 47. How many of you would like to be called the friend of God? I would. Abraham was, and in Psalm 47, uh, the psalmist talks about David, and he invites us uh, to enter into his presence this way. Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands. Everybody clap your hands. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he hath loved. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise unto our King. Sing praises, for God is King of all the earth. Sing praise with understanding. God reigns over the heathen. God sits upon the throne of His holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God, and He is greatly exalted. Can we say thanks be to God? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us another day, for giving us the opportunity to keep the stones from crying out. Lord, we lift up our voices to you, praising you and, and singing praises to your name, for your name is above every name. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. We praise you and we thank you and we recognize you as Lord, not because you have uh, reigned upon us in, in, in such a way as to crush us down, but because you have lifted us up. Lord, you said that uh, in your word that you, when you were rich, became poor, that we might become rich. Lord, you invited us into your life, not just as your slaves and servants, but you have called us your sons. We are your sons and your daughters today, and as your holy children invited into your place, we gather around your throne singing praises to you. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said? Remain standing for just a moment as I read my text. I think it's a little bit ironic today. Uh, Aunt Naomi, you're here. I'm going to be preaching on Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 42. We heard probably 5,000 messages on that same topic growing up, um, but we are preaching through the book of Acts. Our text today is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. I'm going to read down to verse 42. My sermon today is called Repent and receive the promise. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked to their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and in prayers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We pray that we, you would speak to our hearts today. There are many, many things that could be said uh, about this passage of Scripture today, but I pray that the things that are said will be the things that you have meant for us to hear today. Change us by your words, confront us, 
in our sins. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Everybody say repent. If someone asked you what they needed to do to be saved, what would, what would you tell them? This is a pretty important question, isn't it? And the answer, answer is even more important than the question. Here in our text, we have an opportunity, not uh, an opportunity to find the perfect answer or even the opportunity to find a magic formula that we need to write down that unlocks the keys of the kingdom. But because here in the book of Acts, here in the Bible, we see one of just a few of these scenes, these, the other narratives of historical books of the New Testament, the gospels occur before the establishing of the new covenant and the establishing of Christ's kingdom. All the other books in the New Testament are written to Christians, giving them help on various issues or clearing up some of the errant doctrines creeping into their congregations. But the book of Acts is the only book that captures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how God worked among his people at this very special time. Acts is not a list of rules like the law is. It is not a set of warnings and promises of judgment like we see in the prophets or even uh, it is not a book of songs like we went through just now as we completed the entire book of Psalms that teach us how we ought to sing and pray to the Lord. Acts is a unique glimpse into what God does through people like us, sinners saved by grace, flawed and often faltering though we may be, God has promised to use us in our weakness and become our strength. We are no longer weak, and we need to quit talking like our weakness is the end of our story. I've heard this so much. People, oh, well, you know what? I'm a sinner. You know what? I'm weak. You know what? Uh, uh, I'm flawed. I'm a human being. Well, that's not the end of it. The Bible says, yes, we are weak, but our, in our weakness, what? He becomes strong. In fact, if you remember the prayer of Paul when he asked for the thorn of the flesh to be removed from him, he told him, no, he wasn't going to heal him. He said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So I want you to say out here today, I want you to say, I am strong. I think we focus too much on our weakness and we don't focus enough on our strength. We are powerful, and we need to understand this. The Bible tells us that there is life and death in the power of our tongues. The Bible tells us that people receive faith in Him, life-transforming faith in God through the words that come out of our mouths. The Bible says, how can a man believe unless he hears? How can he hear unless we're out there saying it? You might think that your role in all of this is not important, but God has made your role incredibly important. And there will be many instances when you have the opportunity to answer the question that is asked. Because when people come to a place where their hearts are being moved on by God, what they generally come to is the question of what is it that I need to do about that? And what comes out of your mouth next is going to be pretty important. In the Gospels, we saw how the perfect sinless man would live, but that's not us. Yes, he is our ideal example. He is where we are pressing toward, but like Paul says, never quite getting there, right? He says, I, I'm not that I've apprehended, but I'm trying. Not that I've made it there, but that's where I am pressing. I'm pressing toward the mark. 
That's really all we can do is press toward that mark. We can't be that. But when we read here in the book of Acts, the story of Peter and Paul and Stephen and Philip and Cornelius and even Priscilla and Aquila and Ananias and Sapphira and Simon the sorcerer and so many more, we see a vision of what we too can be for better or worse. We can indeed follow Paul as he followed Christ. This is why I love true stories of people of faith. It's why I just spent three years of my life writing a book on Dr. Eric Jalamar East. It is through stories like this that we learn how God uses us. Dr. East had no clue that he would even live to make it to his destination in the heart of Burma. He didn't know that uh, his words would be the words that brought forth faith in people's lives. He didn't know how to even speak the language of the people he was going to go see. But God does use us. He uses us uniquely. We should not look at these stories, though, like legalists trying to find a law or uh, clever people trying to find a special secret to the kingdom that unlocks, you know, some magic spell. We, we, we are not superstitious. We don't have golden lamps sitting up on the altar here. And if you come and you say the right words and you rub the lamp a certain way, God somehow has to do what you want. That's not the gospel. The stories in the book of Acts were written for this reason. Jesus, Jesus taught us that we must walk in the spirit. He taught us that those that walk in the spirit, remember when he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, the wind blows where it lists. And you hear the sound thereof, and you don't know where it's coming, and you don't know where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. We often don't know when we come to God and when our lives have been changed, when we're filled with the Spirit, we don't even know whether we're coming or going. We don't half the time know what it is that God has for us. I don't believe that Philip here in Acts chapter 8, which came next, I didn't have it read at all because we'd had plenty of reading today, but, but Philip is in Samaria and he's there preaching the word and he understands, but all of a sudden God says, go over there and speak to the man in the chariot, this, this black man from Ethiopia, go ahead and go talk to him. He's like, okay. He didn't know the man would be reading out of uh, the book of Isaiah. He didn't know who the man was. He just knew he was a man in a chariot and God told him to go. He didn't know what was going to happen. Now, we don't, we, we feel a little uncomfortable being led around like that, but it sounds a little bit more like what Abraham really lived through. You know, Joy, when God told Abraham to leave Ur, where did he tell him he was going? He did, right? Just go. When he, he told, he at least told the people in, uh, at the end of Matthew and at the end of the other gospels to go into all the world. He at least told him to go, right? But he, they told him to go everywhere, which is about as bad as telling Abraham just to go, right? Well, how would I know when I get there? Well, you, you, maybe you won't. But you're going to look for a city whose builder and maker is God. You see, following God is not about knowing our destination. It's about knowing our God. Amen? Here in our text, Jesus had just told these, those that were gathered on the, on the day of Pentecost, he told them that they would be given power to do greater things than he had done. All of us filled with the Holy Spirit spread all over the world doing God's will and not our own would be for the saving of the world. I mean, in my mind, Jesus should have just, you know, stayed alive and preached everywhere and healed everyone and fixed everything preached perfect sermons. And if he had been live during the age of the internet, we could all be live streaming with Jesus being the pastor of the church. Wouldn't that be great now? He would say everything perfectly right, right? But that's not what God's plan was. They've been told to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching and baptizing, but they were told not to go under their own power, but they were supposed to go under the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is how God's kingdom comes and how his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is how we are the body of Christ. You might look at yourself and look at your hands and your feet and your limitations and your illnesses and your sinfulness and the baggage, your psychological baggage from all the trauma and abuse and difficulty and go, how on earth could God use somebody like me? 
You see, the father spoke at Jesus' baptism saying, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And now on the day of Pentecost, the day the Jews had been celebrating the delivery of God's law to them in the establishing of a nation under his rule, everyone around heard the Holy Spirit now speaking through the mouths of these people on the day of Pentecost in their native languages in speaking about the wonderful works of God. I don't know if maybe that was like the longest, worst sentence in the world, but I'll just break it down to make it simpler. God spoke, this is my beloved son in his voice over Jesus. He speaks out of our mouths. He spoke out of their mouths on the day of Pentecost. How hear we this? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who Jesus had to correct so sternly once that he called him Satan, he stood up and began to preach. Once again, I think Peter was having a hard time understanding how God was going to change the world through him. You ever have a hard time understanding that? Well, we're going to talk about how that can be. That can only happen through repentance. You know, when you go your own way and when you do your own thing, when you follow your own ideas and your own traditions and what you got planned, uh, God, it doesn't leave room for God. The sermon Peter preached, convicted thousands of the Jews gathering to witness this miracle of Pentecost, the fire was on their head. They were speaking in tongues. It was quite a, a spectacle there. And he tries the people that are there and convicts them of the murder of the Messiah. Not really a happy sermon. You know, hey, you here today, you've killed the Son of God. You've killed the one who came to save you all and his judgment is coming on you and he's going to uh, tread out the wine press of God and he's going to squash you like a bunch of grapes and grind you into powder. This was not a happy message. This was not good news. What the good news came when they came to understand that there was a way out of what they were uh, guilty of. As they came to see their own guilt, they responded by asking, what must we do? Primed by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they responded with humility and readiness to do what needed to be done to be saved from the impending wrath of God. So let's start moving forward through the rest of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to make it all the way to the end of the day of that, I pray. Starting in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We pick up at verse 38. Growing up, this was the most quoted passage of scripture in the world. In fact, there were all kinds of funny things that people would say, how do we change the world? You know, with an ax and 238, you know. Once we have these weapons against the, you know, the world, you know, we can, we can defeat the world. And Acts 2.38 became a, uh, a formulaic answer and uh, the perfect one, two, three steps of saving the whole wide world. And if we had that verse and if we did the things there, we knew exactly what to do. Peter said, repent. Everybody say, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter's very first word was, this word, repent, it's a very important word for us as Christians. It's the very first word of direction for all of us every single day as we are confronted by our own sins. Repent means to make an about face or to turn around like, you know, as their soldiers are marching, you know, go left, right, left, right, and then about face, you turn around and you go the other way. It's a military term. That's what happens to all of us as we come to Christ and he calls us saying, follow me as he did his disciples. He, I, I don't think it was uh, incidental that throughout uh, the time of Christ as he met people, when he met his disciples, he would walk up to them and say, 
follow me. What was he saying? He was saying, repent. Everybody say, repent. You see, to follow God is not to follow yourself anymore. It is not to go uh, where you want to go. When he met them, when Jesus met them, their lives were headed in a certain direction. I mean, guys, sometimes I believe we miss this. You know, these men are 30 years old or so. They're around the age of Jesus, many of them. Jesus walks up to them. They could have been on their way to go pick up food at the market. They could have been on their way to visit their aunt or their mom, or they could have been on the way to the temple, wherever they were going. They had a plan where they were going, right? They had a life. They had friends. They had ideas about what their future was going to be. Like we all do, right? Some of us have in mind, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to go here. We're going to live this. We're going to buy this. We're going to celebrate that. We got plans, right? How many of you got plans? We all got them, right? And the deal is, is the follow me was abandon whatever you got planned and whatever you're doing and follow me. That was very, very intentionally put in the scriptures in each time. And the ones who weren't willing to do that, what did they end up not being? They were not the disciples of God. They said, oh, you know what? I got some important, I got some other things that need to do. Uh, I have a relative who's died and I need to go bury him. Oh, I bought some land and I got to go and see it. What did Jesus say to all of these people? Stop whatever you're doing. Forget about that. In fact, even, I mean, if someone you love died and someone told you don't go to the funeral, how many of you would be real keen on that? Be like, hey, whatever you're doing is so important, it'll still be there when I get back from the funeral. That's not what Jesus told him. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. Some followed him and some did not. And that is what repentance is. It is stopping your own direction and changing it completely. They repented. They turned around from themselves and they followed Jesus. This is what it means to repent. If you're here today raised in one of the members of this church's home or you're from this neighborhood around here or even from my house, Jesus is calling you away from yourself, from following your ideas and your plans and what you think should be your future and he's calling you to follow him. I would say to every person in this room, repent. Have you repented? Are you living a life daily dying to what you want, the way you want it, and when you want it? Or are you just living here thinking this was something I did once when I came to an altar or whatever? Repentance is not merely a prayer. It is a complete change, a total turnaround. God doesn't come into our lives to enrich them or to clean them up. He comes to destroy them. He comes to destroy the old man and to give us a new life. You see, the, the seed that, that we keep, you know, we have it in a little pack, maybe we get from the store, the seed, we've got that seed, right? But Jesus said, unless you put it in the ground, unless it dies, then what? It abides alone. You, you cannot have new life without death, you just cannot. The life that Christ brought into the world could not just come from him living and living. What did he have to do? He had to die. If Jesus had to die, if he went to the garden sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, agonizing, asking God if there was some other way to go, then maybe you and I have some plans that we might need to be able to cancel too. We may have some things going on in our life that we need to turn around from and follow him too. Jesus, the son of God, the perfect sinless man, born of a virgin, living a life, being, you know, uh, in perfect harmony with God. He agonized over a, uh, over a, a direction God wanted him to go and he didn't want to go if he didn't have to go. Anybody agonize over where you're going and what you're doing? If not, I don't think you're following God at all. Following God is a whole series of agonizing departures from self. Rachel, you talked about one today. 
The truth is, is that when you depart, oftentimes the things that we hold on to, that we find comfortable, that we find security in, that we think are happy, we hold on to them. And what we do is we hold on to death and we do not hold on to life. We make a decision for life every single day when we decide to follow him and not our own fleshly desires. Your true freedom in, your freedom in Christ is a total liberation of self. It's likely those who heard this word repent on this day didn't really have the full idea of what we're talking about today. The deeper implications that were uh, meant here, but that's okay. You know, God doesn't require us a complete and full theological understanding for repentance. He simply starts with us right where we are and he calls us to follow him. You know, had they known following him would mean martyrdom, estrangement from your friends, that it would wreck their whole lives. If he had uh, set them up for that in the beginning, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have followed. In this case, those who were gathered had just been shown the guilt that they bore of murdering the Messiah, that they, along with all of those of Israel, had been praying would come for thousands of years. They had been guilty of murdering him. They had just been told the day of the Lord, the dreadful day of unimaginable judgment was upon them. And in the fear of this realization of truth, God called them to repentance. You know, the Bible, particularly in Jude's epistle, said God sometimes saves people this way. By scaring the living daylights out of them. You might go, well, that doesn't really sound, uh, you know, emotional. I had one of my kids tell me something was emotional manipulation. I'll tell you what's emotional manipulation is God. The book of Jude says God saves some people by fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the smell of the garments that smell like smoke. Now, guys, God uses fear to save some people. Sounds like emotional manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in a house and it's on fire and it's burning to the ground, Jonathan, what do you think would motivate you to stop, you know, eating your bran flakes? Uh, you know, I'd really like to finish uh, my donut. I really, this is the, I, I really love a good cup of coffee every day. And I'm just going to go ahead and finish up while flames are. <laughs> would it motivate you to get up and get out? You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, emotional uh, manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, thank God for emotional manipulation. It gets us off of the road to hell that we're on, the road to destruction that we're on, the road to selfishness and pain and difficulty and sets us on a road where we get to bring new life into the lives of others, where we get to see people transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you know that what he read in Acts chapter eight, God had told them to go to Jerusalem, wait till they were endued with power, that's where we're at. But then he told them, then you need to go to Judea and Samaria. But guess what they didn't do, Stephen? They didn't, they got, they're like 3,000 people came to God and we're all worshiping God and we're breaking bread and we're having a great time. Isn't this wonderful? I think we're just gonna stay here and we're gonna revel in it. Look, we got a big church and we got all the people around and we're eating and drinking and going from house to house and it's a blast and it's fantastic. And I think we're gonna stay right here. So you know what God did? God raised up people that stoned Stephen and killed Stephen, and then they just start killing Christians everywhere. Uh, Saul, before he became Paul, was getting letters from the high priest. He was dragging people out of their homes that were Christians. He was having them put in prison. He was having them put to death. You go, well, that wasn't very nice. What was God doing? He was motivating through manipulation to get those people out of Jerusalem, out of the fun time, out of the fellowship, out of the uh, party every other night and get them out on the streets preaching the gospel. You see, God hasn't called our church to become a big fellowship hall. I'll get to that a little bit later. Here it is plain to see in Peter's message was a continuation, an enhancement of John the Baptist's message. Those who were listening had shut their ears to hear his message. But remember what it was? John the Baptist showed up on the scene to prepare for the Messiah's coming with a message that went like this. Repent! 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that brings forth not good fruit is going to be cast down and put into the fire. You're going to be put on the fire and judgment of God, and it's coming, you need to repent. Do you guys remember that? His message wasn't, hey, do you know what? You will be so much happier and so much blessed, and, and you'll, be, you'll be so highly favored you should become a Christian because, I mean, you're pretty much a loser here on this earth. But if you come to God, he's going to make you important and happy and blessed. I don't, that was not his message. It was repent. Everybody say repent. Now they were put into the flames here by Peter with this message of repent. And they were praying to be pulled out. What shall we do, they asked. You see, every time we hear God's word, I believe there's still a constant call to repentance, a daily dying that we're continually called to. John the Baptist, though, had prepped them for the washing of their bodies that represented the cleansing of their lives from of selfishness and sinfulness and fruitlessness. Everybody say fruitlessness. You know, as I was working on this, I thought, you know what? You know, we're, we're more worried about a sinful life of bad fruit, right? When we meet people and they do bad things, right? They're drunkards, they're adulterers, they're whatever they are, and those things that are bad. Do you know John's message was not a message for bad people to clean up their lives? That was not his message. What was the ax laid at the root of the tree for, Josh? Because they weren't doing what? Because they were committing adultery? Because they were liars? Is that what it was for? He says, no. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit. Wow. That sounds a little different than the message we oftentimes preach, right? You're out there to live an the ungodly life, doing what you better repent and straighten up and be good. And the message of John the Baptist was, God's going to cut your tree down and throw it in the fire because you're not producing Good fruit. Sins of omission. Here John's message did the opposite. And Peter was following up on this message. They wanted to know what to do. What good work can we do? What good fruit can we produce to remedy the penalties that they deserved? So Peter responds by telling them to repent, by coming to the waters of baptism, by leaving behind a life of trusting, leaving behind their life and, and trusting obedience to the law. They thought that obedience to the law would save them. They had come to live that way and to trust that would save them. But they had, all of them, I'm sure, by this time in their life had come to realize none of them really obeyed it. He invited them to come to Jesus and receive him as king. You see, once again, when he said the kingdom of heaven was at hand, guess what a kingdom requires, Anna? A king. He's coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's telling them, your king is here. You follow this? He's preaching the kingdom and the king. The king is coming, the king is coming, and the king came, and guess what they did? They killed him. These Jews questioning and mocking the disciples and apostles had rejected him, and now they needed to receive him. This is what this repentance meant for the Jews here on this day. This would be their repentance. Jesus himself had gone to John for baptism, as they were being called to follow their king. Repent and receive him because only in him can you find forgiveness for this sin. That's what the message was. Peter was like, hey, you rejected him as king. He needs to be your king. Yeah, you killed him. I know you're worried about the judgment that's coming because it is. What's the remedy? Repent. What? What? Repent? What do you mean? Remember you rejected him. He said he wasn't your king. Now what do you got to do? You got to say, he is my king. They would be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provided. 
because their sins were forgiven by the one they had sinned against, the king. If the king comes of the land and you kill him, and then you find out he isn't dead, <laughs> but that death could have no hold on him, you're kind of in trouble, right? You picked the wrong side, right? You're, you're guilty. I mean, uh, folks, when, when a new king came into power in days of antiquity, you know what they did? They would go kill all the members of the other royal family sometimes. And you know why they would do this? They're like, we need perfect loyalty. When, when there was this power struggle, those that went against the, the one who was trying to be king, what do they do? They killed all those people when the guy became king. So imagine if you took the side, the wrong side in this political struggle for the whole wide world, and you took part in killing the actual rightful king, and then he raises from the dead and he comes back to see you, and you were rooting for his rival. What could you expect but death and destruction? And they said, oh, not this king. All you got to do is bow your knees to him, and he will forgive you. This king was like no earthly king. He was like the father who had received his son after he had wasted his inheritance. You know the one in the story of the prodigal that Jesus told his disciples, this father received his son back, not as a servant, but a son. He then showed them with the gift. He showered him with a gift of a new robe, a ring upon his hand of trust a feast to celebrate his return. This is what God offers us who repent and come to him. He's not like the kings of this world who when we reject him, he, he takes vengeance. You could not and do not need to try to pay the debt of your sin, this king tells us. God does, however, love the fruits of repentance and he allows us to show him gratitude, the gratitude he deserves by denouncing our own plans and our own ways in learning his. Everybody say, repent and receive the promise. The King of kings and Lord of lords even offers more than the father of the prodigal offered. He offers us the free gift of eternal life. It's not just restoration in the place of a, of a good home. <clears throat> it's not just plenty of food. It's not just the trust of a man, but it is eternal life and beyond that, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Through the Holy Spirit, we can begin our new lives now as we walk in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. The miracle that they had been witnessing on the day of Pentecost, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, as they were seeing and hearing, would be their gift too. You see, they showed up as mockers. They showed up questioning. And they came away with God saying, you know, just because you did that, I'm not going to say, and you can't have it now. No, those people could receive it as well. Even those who may have mocked him at first could join the joyful band and revelry of the goodness of God. You know, this is God's promise. It's God's gift of the king for the new and never-ending kingdom. And to make it even better... If it could said to be even better and to tie it into something these Jews knew very well and understood well, Peter adds the words spoken here by the 99-year-old Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, the words that were spoken to him by God. You can read it, and we heard it today in our, our reading of Genesis 17. Let's read it, verse 39. Here we have... Uh, Peter quoting what God had said to Abraham, for this promise is unto you. Everybody say, and to your children. You know what, I'll tell you what, I have joy for the things that good things that happen to me, Stephen. But when something good happens for my kids, it's even better than when it happens to me. And to know that salvation was not just going to be for them, but it was going to be for their children. For this promise is unto you, to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This promise was not only for them, it was from their children. God had displayed this individual and personal relationship with each one there on the day of Pentecost. And they were reminded now <clears throat> how one man like Abraham could be called the friend of God. They were overwhelmed and overjoyed now to know that God was still a covenant God 
and that this promise, this miracle, this good news they received was good news, not just for them as individuals, but for their whole families. He would receive them all. This was God's doing. God would call all men and women, call as he had called Abraham to come out of Ur of Chaldees. He would call them to come unto him that were weary and heavy laden, and they would find rest to their souls. He would call and they would answer. Those God calls always answer him because he gives them ears to hear and feet that are swift to obey. What he starts in men and women, he brings to completion. Salvation was not a work of the flesh. It would be a work of the Spirit of God, one he would complete. This was not all Peter said on that day. He said a great deal more that I, Luke did not include as, as we read here in verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Luke was careful to let his readers know Peter had a great deal more to say in his sermon. It was not a three-minute appeal. He called on them as the Holy Spirit spoke through him. He pleaded with them. He confronted them. He was passionate about what he said. No doubt there was a dramatic and emotional experience fraught with tears of regret for the crucifixion and the rejection of the one God had sent to save them. Imagine living your whole life praying and hoping the Messiah would come at every feast and every celebration and hoping and praying and realizing that he had come and that you killed him. Wouldn't you start to cry about that point? When you start to fall apart, when you start to go, but then he takes, oh yeah, but, but you thought that was going to be the end, but it wasn't because God raised him from the dead. And now you're getting excited that he was raised from the dead, but now you're coming to the realization that it was you that killed him. And, and so do you see the emotional ups and downs that they were experiencing Tears and even shouts of joy learning about the free gift of forgiveness that extended to their families. And it was going to fill them too with the Holy Ghost as he had done all of those they had seen making such a raucous time there on the day of Pentecost that they thought they were drunkards. He's saying, not only is God going to forgive you, not only is he going to save you, God is going to fill you just like he just filled these people on the day of Pentecost. You can have it too. Folks, I can tell you what, this must have been a great fun time. It was certainly not a structured church service. In fact, it wasn't a church service at all, as we may know it. The first sermon of the church was not preached in a church building with a pre-planned and rehearsed format. God moved on them where, when and where he wanted to. And they could have never foreseen the, certainly were not planning to swell by 2,500% more in one day than they had been. That's a pretty, that's a big percentage growth, you know. Well, how much have you, how much has your church grown in the last week? Oh, by 2,500%. That's a pretty good growth number, wouldn't you think? This wasn't part of their strategic plan. I actually wonder more how long what happened next took. I, I, try, to, I, I try to imagine what it would be like to have been there on the day when 3,000 people came to know Jesus and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls, 3,000 new people. No confirmation services, no waiting, no making them prove they were really Christians as some Christian groups feel is very necessary. No six month waiting period for membership to see if they really, really fit in here. You know, we just want to make sure. No, in way. And the Lord added to the church daily, everybody say daily, such as should be saved. Well, I don't know if they were really all Christians. I don't, I don't know if this is really the way that you should do things. Well, a lot of churches would not do things like that. And you know what? God won't be using them. He won't. If you don't allow people to come to Christ and you make them wait six months to come to Christ, something makes me think, Naomi, that maybe God is not going to use you. What do you think? It's actually one of the most disturbing cultural things I encountered in research for my book. The Baptists at that time would not allow people to come and be baptized. They would not allow people to say they were Christians. They would make them prove it over months. 
And if for months they proved it and they could really explain it, then they would baptize them. Folks, guys, I love these beautiful missionaries, but come on now. And you know what God does? God confronts uh, this missionary that I wrote this book about in a pretty dramatic way. This woman comes into church and she says, I have received the gospel and I want it. And he goes, well, don't you understand that your husband is off and he's hunting and we know he's a bad dude and we know he's not going to like this. He hates the church and uh, we really probably shouldn't baptize you. And she looks at the missionary. Does it not say? Does it not say that I need to be baptized, that I need to come and get my life right with God? Does it say anything about worrying about what happens next? (laughs) She schooled him. And he couldn't resist her. Why? Because she's telling the truth. Because in this case, did they wait a month? Did they wait a year? Or did they baptize them immediately? Everybody say it. They baptized them. They didn't have baptism Sunday once a month. That's not what they did. Now, am I saying it's a sin to have baptism Sunday every month? I'm not saying it's a sin. But I'm saying we're reading this and we're watching what they did. And they were being moved on by the Holy Spirit. So I know for sure at least one time the Holy Ghost didn't make anybody wait more than five minutes to be baptized. Can we say thanks be to God? So God can do that. You might go, well, he doesn't act like that anymore. Man, I wish he would. I wish we had 3,000 people that just wrecked our church. We'd be all going, what? We're going to need more chairs. Well, we can't, our fellowship meal, we don't have enough food. And what, 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 what are we going to do? We're going to have to get more bathrooms and it's a mess. What are we going to do around here? I'd love it. You be with me, Rachel? You be trying to help disciple people and tell them, yeah. Instant adding to the church, instant baptism. Talk about infant baptism. What about instant baptism? That might be a more controversial theological subject for the church in 2023. Instant baptism. You believe in instant baptism? (laughs) You might get more guff for that than baptizing babies. You see, this is a consistent pattern of the book of Acts. We've all become so much more sophisticated, though. I'm not saying it's all bad, but I am saying it certainly wasn't necessary then. And I'm pretty sure we're filled with the same Holy Ghost. Here in the crowd, there were men, women, children of all ages, yet we hear nothing about age limits, excluding people who were not old enough to quite explain it all and and tell them uh, what it was. And and they're like, oh, we're going to have a cutoff here at this certain age. No, I, I don't hear anything about that. This would have been a great point to do that, right? And there were people around there and, and the ones that were above a certain age and could articulate the gospel perfectly. They, no, it says, and they were all baptized. They didn't have a lot of time to sort it out. They only, this all happened in one day and they make a point of that. My goal here is not to slam anyone, but to point out what happened that day. Everybody say that day. It's not to say that what happened on that day will ever happen again the same way. It most likely will not. But God has given us a story and many others to follow to teach us something. And we should pray we learn what the Holy Ghost is teaching us today through it. Another thing to note is there were no rivers or lakes in Jerusalem. I've been there. I've walked all around the place. There are no lakes. There are no rivers. There was no running water. There are no aqueducts that lead to Jerusalem that provide water. They don't have it. They have a few pools. You've heard about them. Pool of Bethesda, Pool of Silo. They were inside the city. But they didn't apparently go there. If they had gone there, they would have said so. Luke was very good about they're in the upper room and they're in Bethlehem. He's telling all these different places where they went. But he didn't say they did that. We don't know. But even though we'd like to imagine it more than we like to see on our slide like this... Come on, three, this is what it should be like in our minds, right? 3,000 people, they, they go. Folks, if they did that, they would have to walk all the way to Jericho. That's where, this, that's where this is. This is the Jordan River. It's so far away. It's in the middle of the desert. Uh, half the people would be afraid they'd die before they would get there. Do you think that's what they did? I don't think that's what they did. I don't think they had time to do that. They were very near those small small pools of water near the entrance of the temple used for ceremonial washing or 
baptizing, as they called it. Who knows? But it certainly wasn't something that happened quickly. It must have gone on for hours. And as I began to imagine what this was like, perhaps there was singing and praying and baptizing and eating. It must have been a beautiful, wonderful day. Everyone must have worn themselves out enjoying these blessings. This is what it means that God gives us beauty for ashes. They were destined for destruction and headed for hellfire, and now they were walking free in the grace and the goodness of God. They had come with tears of mourning pricked to their hearts, and God had given them dancing. He had given them the oil of joy for mourning and the Holy Ghost as they were, and they were shining with it. And they continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. This was not a one and done kind of a thing. Yes, God had poured out his spirit upon them in a dramatic way. They were overwhelmed by the addition of so many disciples, but this meant that they had a lot of work to do. Their work began that very day doing what Jesus has said to do. He said to go in the world, preach the gospel, and teach them everything I taught you. That's what the church should be about. That is the work of the church. The, ch the work of the church is about preaching, harvesting, and teaching. That's what we've got to be doing. It was all up to them now to teach all of these new ones, all that Jesus had taught them. I'll tell you what, it's one of my favorite things to do when someone comes to Christ because I get to tell them all about the beautiful things of the Lord. And as I do, and I watch those truths explode in their minds and their lives and transform them, I relive it again. I love fellowship and I like to play, but fellowship and play are meant to strengthen us for the work that we've been called to do. They are not what we, we did not, God did not save us so we can fellowship with each other. Fellowship is what we do in between the work. Fellowship and play are not what we sh should be the driving force of a church. It has become that though. It's become that here at our church. I love fellowship, but it's so much better when we've been working. When we work, we have something good to talk about when we fellowship, when we charge up to go out and to do more, when our fellowship gets in the way of our work, we have things backwards. They began immediately breaking bread together, practicing what Jesus had told them to do to remember his sacrifice for them and his call to them to do the same. They were busy going from house to house, teaching and serving one another. We should not be filling our lives with activities and then trying to work around them to fulfill our calling to go into the world, to preach the gospel, and to make disciples. It should be the other way around. This was a lovely time, but they were at war with the devil, and it was also a serious time. Everybody say, it was serious. There were multitudes that had not been told about the coming judgment and the realness of the Messiah that they had killed, and this work needed to be done before the judgment came. The judgment would come soon enough when the Romans would sack Jerusalem just a few years later and level it to the ground, destroying the temple and ending Jewish worship forever. Millions would die horrible deaths in plagues and fires as the dreadful day of the Lord came, but they did not know it. They did not know when it would come. They did not know the day or the hour that it would come. And they pleaded with people as they preached, telling judgment was coming. You read it about it continually in the epistles. Today, people mistakenly make that something that applies to 2023. Every time a bomb goes off, every time a nation gets in a fight with another nation, every time something bad, they're like, oh, that day's coming. No, the Bible said the day was coming and it would be like no other day that there ever was. And that day came for Jerusalem already. As we come to verse 43, it says, and fear, everybody say fear. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Fear was then and still is now an important tool of God. The fear of man is not. The fear of the devil is not. The fear of so many things that are true are, are a true torment. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all real knowledge and wisdom. What do you mean? I'll tell you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is this. God says to go and do this. If you don't do this, you know, you can expect some pretty rough things to happen. If you're the church in Jerusalem who likes to party and feast, but who doesn't like to obey the word of God, God's going to send a persecutor in your midst to run you off because you're going to find yourself in Samaria then doing what? Preaching the word, which is what you should have been doing all along. He motivates us through difficult things. We don't know the signs and wonders done by the apostles were, but whether they were 
whatever they were, they scared some people outside the church and they put proper fear within it. This is what God does as we will see in the coming weeks and months in this telling narrative of the founding of Christ's church. Fear is a big part of what is going on. Verse 44, and all that believed were together and they had all things common. This is the beautiful part. Sometimes it's like when we go, when the children of Israel came to the promised land, they fell in love with the land itself. They fell in love with the beautiful houses, with the beautiful vineyards, with the incredible blessings, and they forgot God. Sometimes we too can forget God because of all the good things he gives us in our church even. But they were not communists. They were communal. They, their leaders did not lord over them and they did not take all their stuff. A spirit of love and giving overcame them so that they lost the love of this world's good and began loving one another. They could not bear the blessedness and the abundance that they had and look over at their fellow Christian brothers and sisters who didn't have it without sharing what they had. I don't know if you heard me. Maybe you got distracted for a minute. Maybe you're wondering if I'm done preaching, but I'm not quite done. Listen to me. When the Holy Spirit fills your life, you don't look around at your Christian brothers and sisters and go, man, my life's really awesome. You look around and you go, what's their life like? What do they need? How can I help them? That's what love does. If you have to be guilted in that, then you might just not love people. You might want to pray the Lord fills you with his love. They could not bear to be blessed and have abundance and see those of their Christian brothers who were not and do nothing about it. In fact, Jesus said, how dwells the love of God in you if you can? How can you see your brother or sister not have what he needs and it not move you? This is what daily repentance looks like and still looks like now. Now listen to what else they did. Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods. Some of you are not going to like what's coming next. I'm going to tell you right now. I think Pastor Mark's trying to tell us to do something crazy and radical and that we shouldn't uh, be responsible with our money. You know what? I don't want to hear one stupid word about that today from anybody. I'm serious. Deal with what the Bible says and you just live. Don't come and ask me. People sit down with me and I got to give, oh yeah, no, you really should. You, and like, I got to talk, I got to like put a little healing balm on them. Oh no, no, what you're doing is good. No, honey, it's okay that you have a mountain of money so big you can't hardly fit out the front door. Oh no, that's what responsible good people do. That way you can live in your normal way of life until you live to be 130 Oh, that's what every responsible Christian does. Don't look for that from me today. I'm not giving any of that out. I may give it out next week, but I ain't giving it out today. Jesus said where your treasure is, there will your heart be. How many people want your treasure in a bank? How many people want your heart in a bank? How many people want your security in a bank? You can have it. But that's all you'll have. And then you'll end up like the people in 1929 who jumped out of buildings and went in despair because I'll tell you what, there may be a day that they snap their fingers and they go, you know, all that money ain't really there. Oh, what are you going to do? I even wrote it down. I'm going to ask not to be bothered after my sermon today by those of you who might feel compelled to ask me if it's okay. For you to have giant piles of money stored up for your future because it's a responsible thing. Maybe it is. We'll have that sermon, another sermon. Today, I just want to be left alone about this subject. Jesus said you cannot love money and love God. You will hate one and you will love the other. You might go, well, uh, but let's really talk about what that means. No, I don't really want, why don't you think about what that means? I would encourage you to pray about that and figure out what it means for you. All I know for sure is that this is what God said. What Luke recorded as a response for the new believers here in Acts. They sold everything they had and they gave it to everybody else saying that what they had wasn't their own. And you might go, but when we know what happened next. And the Bible said, you know what? And they were naive and they were stupid and they didn't plan. And God showed how foolish they were for doing. Is that what comes next? I don't think it does. Just can't, you know, I can't. This looked like what seems to me an example of what could follow and could please the Lord, actually. 
It doesn't seem to me to be a mark against them, but it is said to their praise. What they did here goes against the desires of the flesh so vehemently and so clearly it must have been a work of the Holy Spirit because no man would have came up for this idea on his own. Consider how you too might repent and receive the promise of God today. He said that if we would not worry about tomorrow, he would worry about it for us. How many of you are tired of worrying? Well, then just quit it. Quit it and let God worry about you. God will worry for us. That if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he would clothe us better than Solomon. He would feed us better than the birds. He would provide us better homes than the foxes, right? I cannot and will not refrain from speaking this truth no matter how much we don't like to hear it. God gave us these words to lead us to repentance and we need to hear them. And let's see how this worked out for the new believers. Wonder what it says in the next verse. And I even wrote some possible next verses that... I would like maybe, maybe. And because of this and their reckless behavior, they had to have someone else who wasn't so foolish take care of them. Isn't that what comes verse the next verse? No, it doesn't say that. How about this? Uh, uh, They became so self-absorbed and proud because they did this. No, it doesn't say that either. So what happened when these foolishly acting people who shared without counting the costs with those that had less than them, what happened to them? Verse 46, and they continuing with daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Does it sound like, Anna, does it sound like what they did wrecked their lives? Messed them up? Drew them away from God? Put them in jeopardy? You know what God says in his word? He says, why don't you, do you really believe in me? You think I'm real? Why don't you prove me and see if I will not do what I said? Do you know God does what he actually says? If he says, don't worry about this, and if you quit worrying about it, let me worry about it, I'll worry about it. What do you think God does? He worries about it. If God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything you need, you're going to have it. What do you think would happen if we actually sought the kingdom of God instead of building our own little parapets and our own little uh, castles to protect us from the things of the world? What on earth do you think would happen? Seems like God gave them time to spend together. Wow. Seems like he gave them unity instead of division and comparison and envy. And they saw good things happen for others. When good things happen for other people, do you, does something bother you in your heart? I hope not. They had gladness, singleness of heart. Maybe we should be so easily, maybe we would be so easily distracted if we weren't buried under our blessings trying to figure out how we can keep keep us in our beloved lifestyles if we live to be 110, as I, I said 130 earlier. I don't think I'll make it that, but I'm, I am definitely going to make it to at least 110. Lord willing. Repent and receive the promise of God today. Sell out for Jesus. Seek the treasures of heaven and love not the world, neither the things that are in it, because there is not room in our hearts for the love of the world and the love of the Father at the same time. The Bible says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's repent from our ways today and receive the promises of God, contentment, peace that passes understanding. Let us keep our hearts and minds not knowing or thinking, maybe believing foolishly that we hold the future. It was like thinking like this, as I said, that drives people to despair and you will see it. They keep, I've seen all these news reports about the big collapse that's coming. Who knows? I just can't care. When all of what we think ends up in smoke in a day, what are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put our hope in Christ. We're going to repent and we're going to receive the promise of eternal life and beauty for our ashes right here and right now. Amen. So what can this do for us today? Chapter two ends with these words that make a great place for us to stop. 
Verse 47, the end of Acts chapter 2 says, they were praising God. These insane, foolish people who decided to take Jesus' words for real, who were filled with the Holy Ghost and decided to love each other and give to each other, they ended up praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Repent and receive the promise of the Father today. And you will leave here praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord will add to our church daily those he is saving. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you want to repent today? How many of you want to turn from your own ways and your own plans and follow Christ? And not live like the world lives or live like your own flesh wants you to live. How many of you are willing to walk away from that life and say, I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to follow Christ. Let's stand today as we sing how deep the Father's love is for us. If you are here today and you want to repent of your sins, you can come today and you can offer up a sacrifice of repentance to God right here at the altar. You can do it in your seat and you can say, I am tired of living the life that I was living. And today I'm going to repent of my sins. You might go, if I come up forward, someone will think I wasn't saved. Jesus uh, has led us and taught us. Paul talked about dying. How often? Daily. So if you come to the altar every day, it'll be all right. If you pray every day and call out in repentance every day, guess what? It's going to be all right. Because in that death, there will be life. We're going to sing Trust and Obey, number 19. joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.